You are listening to the Faith in Order series, hosted in collaboration with the National Council of Churches in the United States, alongside the Center for Ecumenical and Interreligious Engagement at Seattle University. This is Michael Reed Trice, a director and professor at the Seattle University Center for Ecumenical and Interreligious Engagement, and you're listening to our Religica Theolab. Today in the Faith in Order series in collaboration with the National Council of Churches, I'm speaking with Dr. Matt Lundberg. Matt's the director of the DeVries Institute for Global Faculty Development and a professor of religion at Calvin University in Grand Rapids, Michigan. In his DeVries Institute role, he administers Calvin's Faith and Learning Fellowship Program for newer faculty members. Dr. Lundberg teaches classes at Calvin in systematic theology and history and doctrine and, and Christian ethics, and he has served for the Christian and Reformed Church for 14 years in the Faith and Order Commission Ecumenical Dialogue, and was recently appointed as one of the denomination's representatives to the ninth round of the U.S. Reformed Roman Catholic Dialogue. He is the author of Christian Martyrdom and Christian Violence from Oxford University in 2021 and co-author of An Introduction to Christian Theology out of Cambridge University in its second edition of Press forthcoming in 2022. Finally, Dr. Lundberg is the co-editor of the National Council of Churches Faith and Order volume titled Thinking Theologically About Mass Incarceration, Biblical Foundations and Justice Imperatives, which was published by Paulus Press in 2017. Today, we spend time talking about the relevant themes of faith and order, and in particular, we're asking ourselves after these many years about how faith and order is taken up and makes sense in local communities. We end this with the encouragement to take the risk in local communities engage in conversation that's essential to our shared future, both in Christian witness and in the country. And we reflect together about possible topics for the future. I encourage you to take a listen. Thanks so much, Dr. Lundberg, for joining us today for this podcast. It's great to be here with you, Michael. You know, we've both served on the Faith and Order Commission in the National Council of Churches of Christ in the United States for a number of years, you for 13 years. And I just think it would be interesting for the listener to hear, what is Faith and Order from your vantage point after all of these years? And and even is there a story that remains with you in your experience? That's an example of the work that takes place on the commission. Well, I actually have a story from my very first encounter with Faith and Order that might help me to talk a little bit about what Faith and Order is all about. Yeah. The first meeting I went to was in 2008 in Oklahoma City. I don't know. Were you at that one, Michael? I was. I remember that meeting. That's probably the first time we met. Yeah. And uh, I got there a couple of hours early. So I went for a walk around the neighborhood. And when I finally made my way back to the church where the meeting was being held, I walked into the door, and the first person who greeted me said to me, you're a Methodist, aren't you? Because you walk like a Methodist. <laughs> and I, I felt a little bewildered at that moment, and I said, well, no, I'm actually from the Christian Reformed Church, so from the Reformed slash Presbyterian tradition. Uh-huh. But then I had to ask, what is it about my walk that looks Methodist? Is there something you know, particularly <laughs> sanctified, uh, leaning in the direction of perfection about my walk? So that was a somewhat strange introduction to the faith and order work. Yeah. But I found later on in that meeting that people there were very interested in who I was, where yeah. I was coming from theologically, church-wise. Yeah. And I have this these warm memories of being 
welcomed by a number of people who had been part of that work for a long time, some of them for decades. And I'm a fairly young, you know, theologian, newly at the school where I was teaching at. And uh, to be welcomed so warmly there set a wonderful tone, despite the strange question that began the whole mm. thing. And so, you know, that's a that's sort of a fun story to tell. But, you know, what is faith in order? What does it look like from my vantage point? I see it as an opportunity to encounter other Christians. Yeah. You know, other Christians who differ in certain ways in the beliefs they hold or the way they articulate their beliefs, sometimes the way they organize their communities or practices that are part of their their lives of faith together. And some of those differences matter. Mm -hmm. Some of those differences are significant. But in the course of encountering one another, we also encounter a shared faith, things that hold us together. Now, one of the things that has always struck me about the various gatherings and then the work that has emerged in these gatherings is just the sincerity of the the faith commitments of the people I've worked with and encountered and gotten to know and talked with over meals together. Just this sense that the Christian faith journey is not something that um, just my denomination or my church or my broader tradition is is working at, but it's something that we are traveling in community with so many others. And it was just a wonderful eye-opening experience. It has been over the years, a wonderful, wonderfully eye-opening experience to just sense myself as a fellow traveler with so many other wonderful Mm. people. You know, you've used this word encounter twice in your response, and that's very much been my experience as well. And maybe that's true in all of our communities of faith, whether we walk like Methodists or not, we there's this sense in which, you know, we show up in local community, we want to be encouraged, welcomed, invited, supported. And we want to hear things maybe and say things also that are meaningful to the moment, to the times that we're in. And maybe that's my follow-up question to you with regard to faith and order. I mean, this is a theological discernment, as you're describing, areas where we disagree, areas where we agree. And it's also taking place in the context, and I know we'll talk about this in a moment, but it's taking place in the context of a lot of, you know, super saturated experiences of disruption right now. People are feeling it. Do you sense when you're in those rooms talking with friends and colleagues that what you're doing, the kind of discussions that you're having are in some way also responding to those pressure points in society today? I do. You know, some of the the meetings that stick in my mind in a particularly strong way are those right before and right after the 2016 election, Yeah, which was a strange, painful experience here in the United States. And it continues in, in many ways as we, we live through some rather, rather bizarre times, yeah. disconcerting times. Mm-hmm. So you know, I think that it was just something about the, the experiences that the country was going through mm-hmm. that naturally informed. It really had to inform the theological conversations that were taking place in those particular meetings. There are other times where perhaps the the sense of thinking theologically through a very specific moment isn't quite as obvious. Yeah. You know, there have been other times where we've been working on more general issues or perhaps part of study processes that have been going on for many years where 
the focus might seem a bit a bit less contextually theological, although it's probably still contextual in all sorts of ways that we're not always aware of. Is that answering your question? Kind of getting to it? Yeah, it does. And I, I was thinking also about your, you know, your position for the listener, as mentioned at the beginning. Dr. Lundberg is the is a professor and director at Calvin University. He's the director at the Global Faculty Development Institute. Is it an institute or a center? It's an institute, the DeVries Institute for Global Faculty Development. Thank you. And in that work, as well as where you are in your current research at the intersection of, of religion and society, let's say, or Christian self-understanding and social conflict, you're, you're naming it. We see the kinds of perceived brittleness and democratic norms. There's a racial reckoning also happening in this country. We see even more post-2016, the geopolitical conflict that we see now in Ukraine, Yemen, Myanmar, and other other places. And I just wonder, I think it's a, a different way of asking that last question, but, but maybe more uniquely, how faith and order is an important force for good as you identified in those complex features of modern life. And you and I had spoken briefly a moment ago about even one of the studies around capital punishment and how these different communities respond to the death penalty, for instance. I wonder if we could talk a little bit about that. And you edited the main text of that for the Faith and Order Commission. Can we talk about that for a moment? Sure. Yeah, the backstory there, which you already know, but some of your listeners won't know, is that I think it was around 2013, the National Council of Churches reorganized and began to go about its work in a slightly different way that was focused more directly on some of the social and ethical issues that are important in our society today, but also in lots of ways dividing the churches. So whereas in the past there may have been study groups focused on things like different views of baptism, Mm-hmm. how we can work towards convergence on issues like that. And that, by the way, is a quite important issue. The shift was more towards how we deal with things like violence in society, yeah. how we deal with race and racism and the various structures that perpetuate mm-hmm. discrimination. Mm-hmm. And so one of the focal issues for a number of years, probably 2013 to 2017, something like that, that faith and order really leaned into was mass incarceration, as well as things connected to incarceration, the criminal justice system more broadly, things like forms of punishment, capital punishment, which you mentioned. And we spent a few years trying to think theologically, biblically, with a biblical notion of justice in mind about those challenges in our society, where I think folks tend to know that there are more, you know, per capita more people locked up in the United States than you know any other Western nations, and actually probably more than most other nations in the world. So what do we do about that as Christians? Yeah. How does that matter as we live our lives of faith? Mm-hmm. So we really tried to think carefully about that for a number of years. And the result of that was a volume of essays from multiple perspectives across the range of denominations on different facets of the challenge of incarceration, especially Mm -hmm. the role of racism, oftentimes beneath the surface in our country's practices. Mm -hmm. And I had the honor of serving as one of the co-editors of that volume. And you, Michael, your your listeners should know, provided a wonderful chapter early on in that volume. Thanks for that. And I actually wouldn't, I wouldn't mind hearing you reflect a little bit on the conversations that you used in that essay 
with a, a friend of yours named David, who, who at the time was on death row. I mean, it was a really powerful way into your reflections in that chapter. Yeah, David, thanks for that. I David Jr. Ward was incarcerated in North Carolina Central Prison and was executed on Friday, October 13th, 2001, just a month after after 9-11 in this country. So there was a raw nerve in the country. And a lot of, uh, I still shock and, and mourning and grief, I remember on the evening of his, uh, his execution. For me, it was important in that particular article and in all the conversations we had to think critically about a comment you made a moment ago. What is justice? How does it show up, not just collectively, but for the individual who is facing significant life disruption and even loss of life. I mean, leaving the case aside for a moment in that regard around David and the capital crime of murder, we were fighting in the appellate process. And I would say in that regard, the discussions we have at Faith and Order, how we think about justice, solidarity, love, that is a kind of tactile capacity to it in terms of how we think about our relationship and our moral responsibility in and around the institutions where we serve, including the judicial system, that that the weft and weave of that experience is very much aligned to the work of, of faith and order. And for me, in that particular chapter, I went back to something, as you mentioned earlier, uh, what we agree and disagree about. If you go close enough down to the root theologically, to some of those practitioners, bishops, pastors, lay people, thinkers in the early, early church, someone like St. Augustine, who um, will talk about the kind of sinewed, almost a triple helix in the spiritual DNA of Christian self-understanding of love, justice, solidarity, and truth, and and what's the ordering of love. And I think for me, when we reach those moments in conversations where I can hear resonances from my Methodist friend or my Reformed friend or Catholic and more, then it speaks something. It informs chapters like that. So I appreciate you. Yeah you asking about that. That's my sense. I find those conversations really important for that regard. You know, in a minute, we may want to come back to this issue of the, the pressing social, political dynamics of our current moment. But, you know, you used the word resonance just a, a minute ago. Yeah. And that took me back to my first few years working with Faith and Order here in the U.S. Mm-hmm. I was in a study group focused on Christian unity and mission. Mm-hmm. And one of, the, one of the members of that group was Father John Ford. Yeah. You remember Father John? I do. Yeah. Well, you know, shortly before I I showed up at that first Oklahoma City meeting, someone from the NCC had sent a few documents out to kind of help get me oriented to this work. And one of the things they sent out was this explanation of faith and order methodology written by one John Ford. (laughs) You know, I did not know at the time that he would be part of this group that I was going to be joining. But in that article that they had sent, he described faith and order work as the attempt through honest conversation to identify resonance Mm. between the churches across denominations, across traditions, across beliefs and practices, and then dissonance. So really being honest about those points where we do not see things quite the same way, or those Mm -hmm. points where our membership in the same body is problematized Mm -hmm. by the fact that we really do things and see certain things quite differently. And then the third thing that that we should try to identify, according to to Father John, is nonsense, what he calls nonsense. So those moments where perhaps you, Michael, or perhaps I, or others in the conversation 
think things, say things, do things that just don't quite compute to others in the conversation. With all of that, the amount of honesty and frankness that is required to do it well is astounding. And I I think that's the case even when we're thinking about what we might think of as sheerly theological issues. How much more difficult is that in our conversations about those pressured, polarized topics of today, Mm. whether that's elections or fair elections or race and racism or structures of policing, things like that? Mm -hmm. How much more difficult is it for us to be honest about the resonance that exists Mm -hmm. when we are increasingly trained just to see other people in the conversation as getting it wrong? Mm-hmm. I think in a way that's probably the opposite temptation compared to what we usually experience in sheer faith and order discussions, where our tendency might be to focus so much on resonance that we're not quite being honest enough about those moments of dissonance. But I think in our culture today, we tend to focus on how the other people, the other side, you know, the other viewpoints are getting things wrong and dangerously wrong, mm-hmm. that we lose sight of certain things where, you know, you know, certain sh- points of shared ground, you know, common, you know, something that we can agree on that might actually enable us to have a fruitful, more constructive conversation rather Mm -hmm. than just vilifying one another. So I wonder if there's something we can learn. I bet you have some thoughts on this, something we can learn from the dynamics of faith and order conversation, resonance, dissonance, nonsense, that can help train us to have better conversations as a society, as, as neighborhoods, as university communities, et cetera. Oh, I think that's just incredibly important, especially now where we see communities that are pretty balkanized, where we have somehow come to believe that the virtue of public discourse can be reduced to a shouting match and that somehow the patient understanding that's required of raising our collective empathy IQ in society, that that takes time. And you can't do that when we're shouting at one another. And it's going to be required of the brittleness of democracy, going back to that phrase earlier, we're, we're going to have to reform the way we think about our shared future in a way that is patient, understanding, thoughtful. And, and to your point on resonance, dissonance, and nonsense, I was thinking about, remember that time in Oklahoma City, as you mentioned, and in that particular meeting, I had an opportunity to go to the Oklahoma City bombing memorial. And a number of us walked up that green where when the explosion took place and it sheared off that front of the building, it also devastated the natural landscape. So any trees that were growing there were just splintered and seared, raised off at the, at the stump, except for one. There was one tree very close to the building that actually, although it was misshapen, could be saved. And that sense of tangled wood and leaves uh, is there to this day. And it's a very beautiful tree, actually, because it's also a testimony to how things can survive after catastrophe. And a number of smaller trees were then at that time planted. But it has the effect as you're looking up this little incline of those smaller trees, new life, new possibilities, yearning toward the wisdom of of the old. And I see that as also a part of the faith and order work in this way. If the larger tree is that sense of resonance, that's where we we recognize that even though society has wounds, we can continue to grow and mature together. It will take a lot of soul searching. It'll take a lot of spiritual self-assessment and communities will have to address how they 
We'll look at the significant and respond to the significant injustices and disequilibriums in society, right? But on the other hand, somewhere between those smaller trees yearning toward the top and that resonance is a lot of the dissonance you're discussing and the nonsense. And even I would say in that, in the Faith and Order Commission, it's the nonsense. It's the often the irrational, the incomprehensible, the incalculable, the things that we don't anticipate on the flank that is precisely where they have you know social impact such as the me too movement or black lives matter or as we're looking at you know white supremacy and a racial reckoning in this country faith and order has something to say to this it must because if it doesn't around the tirade of a lot of nonsense if we don't find areas of resonance together or at least even to say here's where we're different from one another here's where we find dissonance that too is an essential part of the work that's how i would no, I would respond to that prompt from you. So for the listener, those theologians who are participating in faith and order over the years are also not abstract. These are people who have families and homes and careers and professions and vocations. And those theologians and pastors also bring their written work to the commission itself. And Dr. Lundberg has two recent works, one in the relationship between Christianity and violence, and another introducing the generative heart, we might say, of Christian theology wonder if one may serve as a warning to religious ideology. We see a lot of that in the world right now, whereas the other is an invitation to experience the good of Christian life. Maybe you could first comment if that's a fair assessment. And further is, is this also in some way the work of faith and order as a commission uh, committed to an authentic view that's, you know, that's paired with a, a realistic interpretation of the past and a generative sense of our shared future? That's a lot to ask, but how would you respond to those many questions? Yeah, well, you know, the first question, you know, you asked whether you're characterizing the projects accurately. And I would say, yes, accurately enough. The book on violence, I think, really is intended to push both the just war and the pacifist traditions within Christianity to a sense of honesty about what, you know, what's at stake when we think about how to act in the world, how... Mm -hmm how to respond to aggression, violence, things like that. And I may come back to that in just a second, because I think, you know, there are some important ways in which how I approached that book was informed by my faith and order experiences. Okay. And the other one, an invitation to experience the good of Christian life. Well, you're talking about an introductory systematic theology there. So Mm -hmm. sure, it would be a delight to me if readers, many of them students, are experiencing the good, the invitation of thinking carefully toward faithfulness in the Christian life. So yeah, I, I think overall, I'm pretty happy with the way you've characterized those two things. Mm-hmm. But your, your question really is, what does faith and order have to do with these projects? Mm. Well, the book on Christianity and violence, really with martyrdom as, as the way to get to the heart of it in a kind of a uniquely Christian way, not a uniquely Christian way, but the way I'm going about it, it's mm-hmm. focusing on Christian martyrdom. One of the chapters in that book had its beginnings in a faith and order group a few years back. I think it was shortly after the the mass incarceration groups wrapped up their work. Okay. That one of the groups was focused on violence in relationship to racism. Yeah. And so one of the projects that I dove into in the course of that study group was looking at one major ecumenical tradition within the church, the just war tradition. Mm-hmm. And trying to mine or to find their insights 
that can help us to analyze the various forms of violence that are related to race and racism. Mm -hmm. So I then ended up drawing from that paper, which was published with some of the other, you know, papers from that group. I drew from that for one of the book chapters and had to modify it a little bit Mm -hmm. to fit what I was doing in the broader book. But I would say the most important way in which Faith and Order informed that book was the way that I approached that long-standing conversation, debate, disagreement between the pacifist churches or the peace church traditions and the just war traditions within Christianity. I take a side on that debate. And in case your listeners are interested, I lean more in the just war direction. Mm -hmm. But I ultimately frame the debate in that book as one that is healthy within the church, the kind of conversation that the church really needs Mm -hmm. in order to be kept honest and to be kept faithful. Mm -hmm. The way I describe those traditions in the church is that they can function as one another's, you know, consciences, almost external consciences. Interesting. Because they're each picking up on something really important in the Christian faith, kind of homing in on it, and noticing something and therefore speaking something that the other tradition can easily miss. Mm-hmm. So, you know, sometimes in ecumenical discussions, you know this, Michael, we'll use the language of ecumenical gifts, the giving and receiving of gifts. I actually think that they have sort of a, a gift to give one another, including, you know, the risks that they take in different ways, kind of the gamble that the just war advocate makes in thinking that perhaps violence can be used in a way that is reparative or restorative, mm-hmm. or the gamble that the pacifist tradition takes in thinking that responding by turning the other cheek can actually play a role in disarming aggression in the world. Mm-hmm. So seeing that not as something that, you know, we just have to pick a side and then defend our viewpoint to the very end, but actually as a conversation that we can have deep convictions about, but that the conversation itself is so important for the church. That's really, I think, what the book emphasizes even more than my own defense of the just war reasoning. What strikes me in your response, and I see this in other colleagues and friends, and I think for the listener, we can recognize this in our own family systems as well. We do well as a species. We do well in our kind of Christian walk as a reflection of that when we are believing that wisdom has a kind of collective association. It doesn't just reside in the individual expression or in one community. It kind of takes up oxygen in the room. And if we're paying attention to your description of the kind of, not just the perspective of another view, but the conscience of it, you know, what's wrapped inside of that, the kind of moral, theological, or philosophical, or deeply held existential bearing of why I believe what I believe, is something we might call heritage. Like, And these communities have heritages that they're both drawing from and yet sharing in. And I think at our best in family systems, it's often that way too. We may share a heritage, but we're framed differently and uh, uniquely, thank goodness. And we also know that we thrive well when we're listening effectively to one another. And perhaps that's also something of a need nationally and internationally as we see in the world today. One of the questions over these years, I'm sure you've received, I have as well, is, you know, what's the efficacious like capacity of this Faith and Order Commission? Where does it land? In local communities and denominations, in conversations 
kind of spiritual water cooler conversations that happen in, in, in local communities. And I think that's a really important question. I want to ask you what your thoughts are on that. And I think the second question after that really is, what about the international context? And is there a collaboration between, say, different faith and order commissions? There's one in Cuba. There's an international faith and order commission in the World Council of Churches. There's others in, in different countries around the world. And so we might ask ourselves that question, too. Where would you like to start with that response? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of directions we could run with that. You know, one of the things that I've noticed over the years is that when we think of faith and order, we most often think of the World Council of Churches, Mm -hmm. and for good reason. We might think, you know, and I guess I should really interrogate the we that I'm talking about here. We theologians who are knowledgeable about faith and order might think about some of the important statements that have been produced by the World Council of Churches' faith and order work Mm -hmm. over the years. You know, one of the most important ones that always comes to my mind is, you know, BEM, Baptism, Eucharist, and Ministry, which, you know, maybe there's been some studies done on this, but it would would be interesting to think about how a statement like that has played a role in shaping the way denominations do things, or perhaps even played a role in allowing for actual institutional convergence. But I think we automatically think about that world level of things. Mm And I think at that world level of things, that kind of gets to your second question. Mm-hmm. Then we can cycle back to the first part of it again. You know, that World Council of Churches work, I think, does in its very nature bring together some of the faith and order work that is done at various national levels. Mm-hmm. As you have delegates from different parts of the world coming together for long periods of time to think very carefully about topics like that. And also, hopefully, to think very practically. Mm-hmm. about topics like that. Mm-hmm. And how can we think about the differences surrounding baptism in ways that draw the churches together, not just in a theoretical, theological sense, but yeah. in a way that we can enact in our actual ways of being Christian, being communities together. We may also think about the national level. That's the level that I've been involved in, mm-hmm. you've been involved in, although you have you also been involved in WCC work over the years? Not directly in faith and order, although at the state level, yes, and and also in the kind of reception of all of this at the local level, that's been important to me. Okay. Well, you know, the national level, I think over the, the 13, 14 years that I've been part of NCC, Faith and Order Work, there's been a growing consciousness of the importance of the work resulting in resources that can be used by congregations. Mm-hmm. You know, things, whether it's websites or curricula or even bulletin, you know, handouts, things like that, that bring the the higher level work of the commission to bear on the lived challenges and, you know, joys and sorrows of Christian communities. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, I do think if we're being honest, there's some disconnect at times between what happens at that international or national level and what most congregations are going through in their communities, in their neighborhoods. Yeah. You know, sometimes I drive around my city, Grand Rapids, Michigan, and I'm I'm reminded how many churches there are here. Yeah. Sometimes it's described in Michigan as the city of churches. Mm. And as I'm reminded how many churches there are, I'm also sometimes struck by how little meaningful contact I have with most of them. Yeah. There's different communities of Christ, sometimes in the same neighborhood, living almost parallel lives of faith not intersecting a whole lot. Yeah. So, that, you know, that leads me to wonder about 
faith and order at a very, very local level. And it's possible, you know, it's not like the World Council of Churches or the National Council of Churches or the whatever the Council of Churches is in Cuba has any trademark on faith and order. It's kind of an organic movement. Yeah. It can happen anywhere. Yeah. Really can happen anywhere people make the effort to make it happen, where they have kind of a vision of a transformed way of engaging with one another, or back to that term we talked about earlier, encountering one another yeah, as disciples of Christ. So I, I can imagine, you know, and I feel a little bad that I'm talking about this, and I've never actually tried to make this happen in my own city, but it wouldn't really be that difficult, you know, pandemics notwithstanding, to get people together from different congregations in a neighborhood. You know, just let's say there's four churches in a neighborhood, say, hey, you choose five people, we'll choose five people and get those 20 people together over a meal and just start talking about what the Christian journey looks like for them from their different points of view and see where things go from there. That's it. I mean, I think you're naming it. And sometimes perhaps we think of this kind of like a layered cake, you know, top layer being international, national, local, but we flip that the way you're doing and instead put a preferential option on the local. And, and that's really what it is. So those neighborhood communities get together for the listener. Imagine doing this in your local community, as Dr. Lundberg has said, like you get together in your local community and you, you have a meal and you have three things you want to do. You want to find out First, you want to get to know each other. The second is you want to find out where you have resonance. And, and resonance is an important word because it's not just about what you agree on. It's what are you talking about in your community? What matters to you? What are the kinds of themes or issues that are, are taking up room in your collective conscience? Like, how are you gathering around ideas that impact your local community? Not just you, but the others you're talking with. And perhaps the second goal is to find out areas of of dissonance. What are you not doing together? It's not, again, to say, what do we disagree on? That's not the point. The point is, if we're not together on certain things, what might we do collaboratively? Or perhaps it's better that we're not doing it collaboratively, but we're all benefiting from the work that each is doing. In short, there's a exploratory conversation over a meal that can take place there. And the third, in terms of nonsense, I mean, that's where it gets really exciting. What's not on the table at all? What's on the flank? What are we not considered? What seems to be just the absurd or or kind of illogical aspects of our shared lives that we see around, but that we should talk together. And by virtue of doing that, we're able to make meaning of it in a way that, as you mentioned earlier, is drawing on the consciences that we all bring to this, the kind of heritages, if we say it that way too, that we all bring to this particular work. That's really fruitful work. And then there's something to be said about faith, the expression of shared faith, and the ordering of who we are and how we are, our being and doing, that shows up over a meal in a two-hour time span. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right about that. And I, I think that using you know Father John Ford's three moments of the conversation is a kind of a helpful way to think about how you need mm. structure, grassroots, community-level faith and order gatherings like that. I do think we have to recognize that you know it's it probably still feels kind of risky. Mm-hmm, yeah. Because oftentimes the different congregations that find themselves in the same neighborhood reflect the divisions of our society. So yeah. you might have one of those congregations that's predominantly white, another that's predominantly black. And so there's going to be a lot going on there, perhaps with the dissonance and nonsense part of things because of the ways in which the congregational experiences of the life of faith 
are affected mm-hmm. by the dynamics of the society that we all in, inhabit, but inhabit in very different ways. Mm-hmm. So I, I think we'd have to recognize that, yeah, on one level, it's kind of easy get people together for a meal and see what the heck happens. But there's also a, a bit of a leap of faith that we would need to be ready for yeah. doing that just because there's a lot of pain. Yeah. And the pain isn't experienced equally. Yeah. As you're thinking about this next question, I want to ask you, and then I'll say a few words to just give you a sense to think about it. If we had to look at faith and order, big questions that we need to be addressing in the future, either at the local level, national or international, what are a couple of things that come to mind to you that you say on the horizon of where theology or religion meets, where religion meets society and theological reflection is engaged on societal needs? What might we consider discussing next and what might we do in local communities? And while you're thinking about that, let me just pick up on something you just mentioned. In May of 2020, in the United States, 58,000 people had died from the pandemic, the viral pandemic. And that's equivalent to those men and women who had served and and died during uh, the Vietnam War. Yeah. Now we're well over a million. And to your point of kind of whether we call that moral injury or trauma or or other kinds of stressors, that alongside what we might call a pandemic age with other stressors, some of which we've already mentioned. I mean, some things have become fairly glaringly apparent about American society that that have to be addressed. And we're talking about structural racism and those kinds of issues. I just want to in effect, double down on what you said. Those are painful conversations to have. But what do we do if we don't have those? What happens in local communities? What's the alternative? We have to talk with each other. And that is precisely, I think, to your point, what Faith and Order is doing. So now let me cycle back to you on this question. What do you think are a couple of themes that we're going to need to address anywhere along that bandwidth in Faith and Order in the future in order to be a credible witness to the Christian faith? Yeah, one of them. I'm not really sure I have, I'm going to have the best formed answers to this particular question, yeah. but I'll give it a crack. One, I think, is just thinking from the resources, from the reservoir of faith yeah. about what civil conversation and civil civic engagement looks like. Yeah. Because we're, you know, we're in danger of losing that or we've already lost it. I mean, that's a mm-hmm. pressing need in our national community today. Mm-hmm. And I think another another one, I mean, I have a, less of an idea of what this would look like at the local level, but I do think this is something that we got to start on in the NCC level of things, and then it, it was curtailed a number of years ago, was thinking about the divisions that are creeping up or have actually been present for a long time within denominations, whether that's over issues of sexuality, issues of even race once again how our polities as different Christian communities shape the way that we engage those divisive issues within the church. Yeah. And we're within the churches, plural. So I think there is a whole lot to be learned there from the ways in which other church polities can negotiate and work through those differences in ways that are constructive, fruitful, Christ-honoring, rather Mm -hmm. than just merely poisonously divisive. Yeah. And I think a third challenge, the challenge that we're all facing in a whole number of different ways, is to find ways to get back together again. Mm-hmm. You know, whether that's for individual communities in the wake of the pandemic, although it's still continuing, 
I'm actually at home today. I would ordinarily be at my office because my wife has COVID. Oh, okay. So she's upstairs and I'm very, very thankful for the vaccines because, you know, she's a little bit miserable, but it's nothing that I'm particularly worried well, I'm about. I'm sorry to hear that, Matt. And I hope that she's doing okay. Your family's okay. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate that. But I mean, that's just to say that we need to look for ways to reinvigorate our community lives together. As churches open up again, who's there, who isn't there? And what kind of community remains? I think that the faith and order level or the faith and order work at the NCC level has fizzled a little bit over the last two years because we haven't been able to be in person together. Mm-hmm. And there's something yeah, almost irreplaceable about being in the same room, sharing the same space with other Christians. Mm-hmm. I think there's something that we experience there that enables the conversation about the journey of faith to happen in a more authentic way. Mm-hmm. Now that that's hard because there's a bit of privilege there being able to travel and, you know, the resources that it takes to do that. But I do think there's something enormously powerful about that. And the impossibility of that happening for the last couple of years, I think has mm-hmm. been reflected in just a slight loss of momentum through the zoom only version of, of faith and order. So you know, I have absolutely no firm answers about how all of that ought to happen. But just to say that that's one of those challenges. I mean, really, half the battle with faith and order work at whatever level is getting people together to have meaningful conversation yeah. about the truth, the truth and the practices of the faith. Yeah. Yeah. Michael, since I'm not you know, fully confident in my own answer to that last question, I'm curious what you think about agenda items for faith and order work at whatever level over the next, you know, five years or so. Well, I, um, to your point earlier, it takes, a, uh, you didn't say this, but I infer it like it takes a village, right? It takes all of us to figure out what we have to talk about next. Most I, right. But I've been thinking there's a couple of things that come to mind to your point also that could happen in, in local communities at any time. And w- one of those is um, we know from reports that uh, clergy from reports from national reputable agencies that the clergy are struggling across the board. Yeah. And there are a number of clergy across denominations who are, you know, leaving their, their post or their call or not leaving their vocation. That's maybe a deeper issue, but they've been exhausted by the kinds of cultural wars and the conflicts that to this point you made earlier show up in the congregation, like it's right there. And over time it's produced in them a kind of exhaustion and anemia that they are no longer able to respond to. I think we need to find ways as a faith and order commission, whether that in whatever context that happens, to be offering discernment about our vocational identities and how we do this effectively and how do we help heal and how do we help those who are staying or leaving to know that they are also a part of a a community that's responsive to them. I think there's a, a deeper theological and very practical way of being present in that regard that the Faith and Order Commission could reflect on, especially where you see this happening across communities. And maybe it's really at the heart of how do we understand a vocation today in today's world. The second one that I've been thinking about is, is something you mentioned as well. The, the, in the 90s, the 1990s and, and on, the discourse around human sexuality that different denominations have been working on, particular around what would have been earlier identified as those those who are in same gender relationships as the with the terminology in the in the 1990s we treated that i think in the churches as a theological moral issue but now with the discourse around lgbtqia rights 
We also see across the nation with new policies and laws that are taking issue with this as a, as a theme in variegated ways. I think the deeper issue really is about theological anthropology, which is to say, what is the human being? How do we understand humanity? Even before we move to moral theology or what the human being does, is there a kind of authoritative sense of how we could talk about what, what we understand for scripture, tradition, history, our communities, the whole heritage, all of it? What is the human being and what are the kinds of relationships that we understand the human being to be engaged in, in ways that are fulfilling and uh, sanctifying and healthy and faithful and and no matter where, what one's position on these issues, say, of, uh, of LGBTQ considerations, that seems to me to be a fundamental theological and really important conversation. And I, I don't think we've had that in the degree that we could. And I think churches have suffered for it because we've often stopped the level of, well, what can the human being do? And that's a moral question, but there's more to do there. And I think that's a place where faith and order can be effective. Yeah, I agree. And just as a, a bit of an aside, I mean, that's an issue that my denomination, the Christian Reformed Church, is wrestling with right now Okay. with a large report on human sexuality that is going to the synodical level this summer. Okay. And I've observed that it really is difficult for folks, wherever they are, whatever their viewpoints are on the issues, to lean into that theological conversation about who we are as human beings, mm -hmm. what are we meant for? I mean, it's very, very easy for us to skip past that to a defense of where we want to end up on something like same-sex marriage, mm -hmm. but not to spend the time patiently working through that theological conversation as you're describing it. And we must. Well, Matt, Dr. Lundberg, this has been a lot of fun for our listeners. We hope that this has been helpful to you as you're discerning, not just the work that's happening in faith and order at the national or even international level, but what you can do in the local levels. We encourage that. You're hearing both of us say, we encourage you to take that up as a possible and considered approach in your local context. Thank you so much for joining on this podcast today. Well, thank you so much for having me. This has been a lot of fun. You've been listening to the Religica Theolab podcast in the Center for Ecumenical and Interreligious Engagement at Seattle University. To learn more about the Center's work and for resources to be used in local communities, visit us at seattleu.edu slash the center. To learn more about the National Council of Churches in the U.S., visit them at nationalcouncilofchurches.us.